Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I am with Muskan Seiti, a Team Poker Stars pro, a friend of mine, a vocal ambassador for the game in India, a burgeoning poker market. Her appearance in the Poker Stars Shark Cage in 2015 was a turning point in her career, as both her personality and play at the table inspired many new fans and convinced Muskan to take up the game even more seriously. Since then, Muskan has turned pro, and she represents Poker Stars on the tour. She was also highly respected in India, where she was honored by the president with the First Ladies Award, celebrating her position as the country's first female professional poker player. She has also been appointed India's responsible gaming ambassador. Today, Muskan talks about a hand that also fascinated me when I first watched it a few years ago, where she held Jack-9 offsuit against Mike Timex McDonald. Hey, Muskan, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for that introduction. Oh my God, Jen. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you so much. Really sweet of you. I honestly, even I, you were one of my idols when I got into poker. And, you know, watching you all these years and getting to know you, it's been amazing. And you're such a nice friend and also a great support to me. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. Well, it's great to have you on. I always have so much fun whenever I see you on the tour. Now, Muskan, tell us a little bit about how this hand history came about. What was going on at this point when you got dealt the Jack-9 off? And, you know, because of you, I watched this episode again. I was like, I have been so scared to watch myself. Believe me, I haven't seen this episode since it aired. It was just once that I had to see it with my dad and a few friends. But other than that, I was like really, really scared to watch it. And uh, now when I look at it, I feel like I would have still played it the same way. But just a few things are here and there. So this hand actually happened on uh, Shark Cage. It was the heat. I had qualified all the way from India. And it was like I was usually an online player. And I just played one or two tournaments live before that. So I now I get there and I find out I'm going to have Libri, uh, Jason Mercier, and then Timex, uh, Sam Grafton, and Mike Tintel on my table. And then I was like really, really scared of firstly uh, Timex. And then obviously Libri was my idol. So I was like even more petrified to be seated on the same poker table with all of these people and then play on tv so for me i played that had played those you know that episode or played that 
qualifier, not as just any other tournament. But it was like, for me, it meant like a chance to win $1 million. So it was like an amazing uh, experience. And Timex and I had a pretty similar stack sizes. It's like 1.2 million and I had 1.4, which is around 40 big blinds at that point. It was folded to us in the later position and I decided to open Jack 9 off. I actually rewatched the hand as well and I... It was like a trip down memory lane because I remember looking at these episodes so closely because I got invited to the shark cage the following year. And I think that you were in the cutoff and you opened Jack Nine Offsuit. And I think yeah. it's a, bril- a brilliant open because the antes in this shark cage were really very, very high. It was like a 15,000, 30,000 blinds with a 10K ante. There was already so much money in the pot. Okay, five players. So like there's almost 100K in the pot and you open to 75K. So probably people like Timex are adjusting correctly but still I think that it's just a, a mandatory open and with those juicy annies I agree with you you know um, looking at this hand history today I honestly feel that it is just slightly loose you know only for that reason because we have such a competent player like Mike McDonald who will be defending a ton from the big blind right but then in this case just how you said it Uh, because the blinds were so high and my player profile, my image at that time was super tight aggressive. I had only played like three, four hands, uh, just one hand before that. I had, I made Timex spend all his time bank chips because, but then he did make a brilliant fold just, just why he is one of the best players in the world. But it was, uh, like he folded top pair versus my trips. And at that point, uh, it was very obvious that if I am opening from the cutoff, like means like I have a really, um, you know, big hand or I'm, I should be tight, right? I, I'm not, I'm not like a a regular player like those guys or maybe not even like close to being a pro right at that point so I just felt like I have a lot of uh, merit in uh, having such a range so now I open and obviously Timex defense Um, at this point I'm like it's okay I'm just gonna do one C bet and he might fold if he completely misses otherwise like We'll get to know, you know, what he has, what he doesn't. And Jen, the flop comes uh, 10, 4 of deuce and just one diamond. So it's like a pretty dry, you know, boat texture. So I just decided to bet very small. So I opened 75k. I again bet 75k uh, into the pot. And And at this point, I was thinking that I can probably achieve the same thing, which is just have him to fold whatever he's missed by investing a little, you know, a little less. And then if he really has something here, he's going to probably anyway raise me. Uh, that was one of the main reasons why I bet really small. The shark cage dynamic comes into play even at this early stage. We should point out to people that the way this tournament worked is if you got to the river and you got bluffed and you folded when your opponent made a bet and they had a, a worse hand than you, you had to miss a whole orbit of hands and just go into like this thing that was called the shark cage. So what's interesting about that is I feel like in some ways it affects the entire hand because even on the flop, you're thinking maybe, certainly on the turn, you're already thinking that if you have like a weak hand, but that has some showdown value, it's not such a bad strategy to like start checking it. Like for instance, if you have like an ace high and you think that you could like check flop and turn and then get Timex to bluff you on the river. Not that he would do that because he might like just see through that. But still, it's kind of interesting that those dynamics coming into play. That said, I think that betting there 
I like it. And I think that the sizing, maybe you could go bigger, but there's like benefits to going small too. I guess the, d- yeah. the danger with going really small is that he could check raise with a wide range and it's probably going to be hard for you to defend enough like just in practice like in practice you might just kind of get intimidated and fold a little bit more than you're supposed to exactly and also if i see today right like looking at timex uh defending range now after studying so much and now i see it i feel like of course i mean we can get a little imbalanced and have like a, a different approach or maybe like bet a little larger or uh, because you have such a high, you know, high level thinking opening. And I mean, he's going to check raise us in, you know, most of the times and just for bluff as well. So uh, either we bet like a little bigger, like you said, or, or we can even check it out and, you know, um, basically be a little imbalanced with him, you know, because he has such a such a high uh, thinking player. So to recap, the flop was 10 deuce for rainbow with the deuce of diamonds. The turn was a seven of diamonds and Timex held the queen tray of diamonds. You you bet like about one third pot, right? And then yeah. you went to a turn, the seven of diamonds. And before the turn comes down, I wanted to ask you, what do you think his plan would have been on a, on a different turn? I mean, he got the best possible turn, which is the seven of diamonds. Uh, but if he if he did not uh, turn another diamond, was he going to shut down? Or did this seabed then make more sense to you because of this? Because now he wants to stay in, right? Now he's hit a diamond and uh, we obviously bet 110 into 330k. And my, again here, even here, my point is not to actually go to the river because I, I know this player is capable of calling me down, you know, with a, with an average hand and I'm honestly holding air right now. So that was my point. But uh, well, once he calls there, it was like, you get it? Like very scary. I, um, I'm like, he's not giving up his small pair anymore. Like, what do I do? And like, even today, uh, I feel like I, I just wish I would have sized up a little more, you know, and all of these uh, on all the streets. I think I like sizing up on the turn. I think the especially with the small flop bet. Sure. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I also think from his point of view, it's very interesting with this shark cage format. I, I, I like the idea of leading on the turn yeah. instead of instead of what he did because yeah I think the lead the turn lead would have been like really tricky for him because then it's kind of nice because your weaker hands he's gonna avoid getting bluffed in a lot of ways because like your random like you know jack x hands like you had are just gonna have to fold and it's okay if like these king and ace highs call like flush draws because then maybe he can bluff you on the river and get the shark cage bonus so yeah I think um it's a pretty interesting spot um what was going through your head can you remember when you saw the seven of diamonds turn (laughs) yeah so when I saw the seven of diamonds I honestly like from the beginning I I put him on a very like a small pair because of the big blind defending range you know just just how you know uh, I expect him to have any normal suited connector there probably a four or maybe like you know maybe a deuce maybe you know at worst he has a 10 but I'm applying pressure on him on each street and I feel like he would have check raised um, the 10 if he had a you know 10 pair or any other sort of holding like that so at this point Jen now once he's called my uh, bet on the turn I decided to bluff him no matter what the river comes because I was expecting him to lead 
this turn or or any turn to be honest if he had anything i, I mean he's such a great player that to be honest it's a really good move uh, by him just check calling cuz he's ex- he expects us to hit something in case we are bluffing and in case the river's a diamond you know he can uh, get one more bet out of us uh, because he's playing so passively uh, there's no way like you know i would still bet the river um if the turn if the river was a diamond uh, to be honest so i feel that his line was interesting um but then also he wins very little from me if he hits that diamond because that's that bluff that i put out is the only bluff like it's the only thing that i do i don't really go all in or lose my whole stack there because i i was expecting a a three bet or a check raise uh, on the turn which did not happen firstly he did not lead and then he did not check raise me uh and then i was just like okay now it's about sending him sending the toughest player on your table to the cage <laughs> so that was the plan going into the river and then the river comes a seven of spades so now actually just before this hand i had um i made him lay down a top pair and and then when i showed the value card so it was pretty obvious that i had trips or better there like if i make a good good bet like you know she could have anything here like she could have set there she i mean it felt i had a lot of credit just because of the hand history just because of the hand played out before that everything was a build up otherwise there was no way i could have gotten away from uh, such an elite player you know and uh, get away with that bluff and then the river did come the seven of spades um so the the flush draw missed all of the straight draws missed but yeah I... so that's exactly i thought that maybe in case he had one of the uh draws he's missed it i don't want to price him in and also i don't want to make such a big bet that i look bluffy so i i decided to go for one more uh like the, my third bar and why i did that was um only for this reason because i i wanted to look so convincing that I, like i really really have it and uh, that's why i bet like 210 that time you know 210 into 600k and i slide in my bluff card and it was just um <laughs> i was just and i even asked him what's your stack i think i asked him like you know can i see your black chips and all that and then he's like um i used up all my time buying chips you know i should have saved them and i i i made him spend all those time buying chips just one hand before right so it was just the whole build up was so nice and uh, the result was amazing cuz uh, he was sent to the cage <laughs> he really made like he laid it down very quickly cuz he was on the shot clock i uh, got lucky because he when when i said bluff bluff and i was like you know go into the cage and all that but he had queen high had jack high if i had like maybe king high or something or even even ace high then i he wouldn't have had to go to the cage basically so that was really nice and uh, it was just actually very lucky and you know to be honest he made a really good fold like my perceived range that time was definitely that i uh, have something here and for him also he played a hand did um, had a lot of equity stayed in the hand because i was a very aggressive out of like out of line little out of line player in the sense my bet sizing was little bizarre when i try to bluff him or try to get value out of him when i had trips and he had top pair i made it really big so you know it felt like now i'm trying to make it small because i know he's not calling me you know like that things like that so all those things i feel like were there behind uh, his decision 
Yeah, no, this hand totally fascinated me as I was preparing for the shark cage. So it was really one of the first ones I thought for the grid. And what it occurred to me later is that it's so terrible for him to have queen three of diamonds in that spot on the river. <laughs> and that like, I, even though, of course, the shark cage, you know, they had a second season, but it's not like this kind of format comes up all the time. But I was like, well, he should probably use his like queen three of diamond hands to check raise on the flop because by the river... It's going to be really awkward for him because now he could get bluffed by worse more easily where if he has like a 3-5 of diamonds hand, normally he might check raise that, but maybe now he should just check call that because he's never going to have to go to the, the cage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe at least like really adjust his frequencies in that way. So it's funny to think like if the shark cage rules were, you know, played more iterations, whether people would develop all these like intricate, you know, counter strategies to like not trying to get to the shit cage. Yeah, and you know, Jen, I feel like uh, the reason he floats there was also maybe he had a plan to bluff us later on. And then basically it just uh, backfired when we kept going for every street. At any point we checked to him, if we checked the flop or the turn to him, he was going to for sure uh, take a stab at it. It was just that he had to adjust uh, also because he was playing a a recreational player, someone who had just started playing poker versus he was such a big pro. And now it it was all about that that sort of uh, meta game you know uh, he wants to keep the fish in <laughs> and like uh, for me I was like oh, I gotta I gotta uh, bluff this bro <laughs> you can make all these fun kind of bluffs this is what fun is this is what poker is for me in fact yeah so re-watching it I mean I thought you came off spectacularly in the show as you were really friendly but you also played really well and you seemed really comfortable of course yeah. for those of you who didn't watch spoiler alert uh, seriously pause right now Muskan did not win her heat, but she did get heads up. And it was tough for you, I think, because you played so well and you were kind of like the star of of that episode. But unfortunately, like it came to heads up and you lost to Mike Tyndall, who was a rugby player, right? (laughs) Yeah, and for me, there was this very big important thing that I learned later that in poker, it's about winning hands without showdown. You don't always have to, you know, go to the river and like, Basically, you don't have to always show down and have that play post-flop. You can also, like, you know, take show some aggression pre-flop, take more hands down, basically. So those are the few things that I early on started learning. And it made me, uh, obviously, a better player. And I feel in a lot of ways, I'm happy that I did not win that heat because uh, I, I feel I would have, maybe I would have lost in the finale. And, you know, I would have just thought I, I wouldn't have improved that much. And that I can tell you for sure. Yeah, I mean, things certainly worked out for you as now you're a professional poker player. In the end, you did lose that just to catch the viewers up. You lost the heads up battle to Mike Tyndall. But I find it so funny that the two non-professionals in the heat ended up getting heads up and it was such a tough field. Of course, it was short stack poker, so it makes some sense. But it was still yeah. like it was still pretty amusing. And you played really well. And I think that this hand was just like really funny and fun for me to look at because it just kind of reminds you that if you switch up the rules to poker even just a little bit everything changes like all of the ranges get kind of adjusted but to be honest everything worked out perfectly that time you know just uh, that time in game Uh, but when you think about these things later you know you just run the situation like 100 different ways and then you know uh, that's how it's it's always fun and thank you so much for reviewing this hand history with me Jen and I feel like you have um, reminded me a lot about uh, you know how it was to get into poker and how, why I got into poker you know the exact uh, feeling of just having fun and being fearless 
tell us a little bit about what you mean by this like feeling of fearlessness. How does it feel inside and how do you kind of get it back if you, you know, haven't been running well or feeling less confident? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, for me, I when I started off playing poker, I was really fearless. I felt like I was also a little lucky in the sense I used to hit cards or whatever the reason was. Or I used to bluff everyone off. There was a lot of fun uh, because I wasn't playing by the rules. Then it was more about just a random gut feeling, a little bit of uh, bed sizing and a little bit of math, just playing with everyone's, uh, you know, uh, body language and stuff like that. And I was very confident because it was everything was working out for me in the beginning. But then there was there were times when I played like tournaments where I had gone to WPT Amsterdam and I had like this uh, really competent player on my table and I had a very, very big stack. I was going to close uh, the day as a chip leader. And in just two levels, I ended up losing my whole stack to him one hand after the other I, and I was just basically getting on and that day I realized that you have to really study hard to be able to like you know any of these big pros can be on your table and to get to their level it's really like difficult and you have to study really hard and then when that happens when you start implementing um, the GTO strategies or any sort of discipline in your life uh, it's not about being fearless or having any sort of fear it's just you you feel like you're a little more in control you know and when I play, went for this shark cage episode I was completely how do you call it you know natural and like had no control on myself and I was creative and even now um you know uh, getting that back is basically training yourself and making yourself you know bulletproof in the sense that your bankroll's in place your study is in place and everything else is in place and your mindset your eating habits everything like you know you've balanced out everything so that you can give your 100 percent on the poker table so that's what i've learned all these years the only thing that keeps me going and gives me that uh, zeal when i'm sitting on the poker table is the fun of playing every hand uh, to the best you know a possible way it's like you you admire someone else's play so you know you're, you have to have so much attention on the table you watch everyone that's what i really enjoy it's not important that i have to be in a big hand even if there's a really important hand on the table i feel like i am playing it that's fantastic and you know, I feel like your remarks are going to resonate with a lot of people because so many people are attracted to poker because they're they're naturals in some way. They're good at reading people. They have a good sense of cards. But then at some point, everybody hits a wall, a downswing, or a part of poker that's difficult for them intellectually. So they study theory or they get a coach. And the, the hardest part is, I think, for a lot of people being able to incorporate those things without losing the gifts that you had in the game and the talents that you had that kind of brought you into it. And it, it, it sounds like you're doing a good job of kind of reaching that balance. Yeah, it's very important to have that balance. you got to keep that player inside you alive. Like the reason why... You have to always remember why you got into poker because then you, you know, you will give your 100%. You have to be disciplined, basically, you know, that's that's about it. And I don't want to encourage people to go crazy with their ages and stuff or uh, stop studying and stuff like that. No, study and just train your gut feeling, train your, you know, natural side so that you're subconsciously playing good poker all the time. We know that theoretically sound poker also involves lots of bluffing, lots of huge sizes. And that's part of the concept of the grid, really, that, you know, studying this grid of poker hands and the theory is not always boring. Sometimes it's terrifying and breathtaking because 
the math is so vast and yet at the same time we can look at it two-dimensionally and try to incorporate a lot of it into our studies. If overthinking also stops you from being creative. So when I was at the at the shark cage that time and I, when I was making this bluff, I knew that I could go to the cage. I knew like I'm going to be on TV and I'm going to uh, probably in 30 seconds be standing in that cage, you know. Uh, and But I took that took that risk. I was very confident about my gut feeling and how I, I felt. And um, that is exactly when we study now and we basically just forget that we, you have to win the pots that don't belong to you, you know. You obviously win the pots that do belong to you. You play your hands really well. But a, a lot of times... You got to get out of line and do something that's not expected from you. And that's how you confuse people. You make them spend their time bank chips. You know, you make them think even no matter even if you are just an amateur and they are the biggest pro uh, in the world, you know, like one of the best in the world, even they, they you will get so confusing for them. Maybe the current Muscan would have come to the same conclusion with slightly different sizings, but still send yeah. Timex to the cage. <laughs> for sure and I, the reason why I would size up uh, would be so that I get more folds from him and especially from such a tough opponent it gets us what we want but in this way we got our math right as well you know and not just uh, gut feeling <laughs> Interesting, yeah. And you know, it was really nice because Timex, for those of you who didn't see the episode, he was interviewed and he just, he raved about how well you played, which is such a huge compliment because Timex is not exactly super flattering to people unless he really believes it. I think that was like one of the nicest things I've heard him say. <laughs> and I'm just kidding. That meant a lot to me. And it was one of the main reasons why, you know, that I kept going, you know, coming from such a good and great player. I know why he said that, because if I look at myself uh, back in the in that show, I, I can see someone who's, you know, trying hard. You get it? Like someone who's scared, but, you know, still still trying to give their all because you can see that. I love the game and, and I was just, just playing it. I wasn't getting giving in to my nerves, you know? Yeah, beautiful. Now, tell me a little bit about your work in poker in India. How do people react? You're the first professional poker player in India. That's incredible. How do people react when they find out that you are a professional poker player? I get a lot of different kind of reactions. People are like, wow, are you serious? That is super cool. And then they also have one or two experiences with poker in their lives. So then they talk about that and they really want to know how to get better at it. And, you know, they, they think like, you know, you're going to start playing poker and make a lot of money. So that's where the responsible gaming ambassador aspect comes in. I do, you know, a few things to kind of uh, spread the awareness. So I try to basically give them some tips on bankroll management and things like that, because that is number one thing, you know, you don't want people going broke. And that's the number one thing that happens when you don't understand something and you start putting uh, your money in it, your personal money. So that is something that is very important to educate people in India. Also, they don't know about, you know, buying action or selling action, things like that. There's so much to talk about in India because it's such a new sport here. It sounds like you're doing lots of good work in spreading the word about the game. And yeah, I was going to ask you about the responsible gaming ambassador, but you um, did address that. But what do you tell people who don't have a lot of disposable income and want to get involved in poker? 
I myself did not uh, have to put in a lot of money when I started out. I was only playing free roles. I was playing uh, tournaments which were not that expensive. I uh, got very lucky that I used to make a lot of money playing cards. You know, even before poker got into my life, I used to play this game, uh, generally played in India around our festive seasons. And I used to make enough money from uh, these card games that I did not have to take pocket money from my parents at a very, very early age. So I always was kind of like, I knew, I, I understood the return of investment really well. It was one of my favorite uh, topics even in school. So for me, like how we can create, like get the maximum return of investment from anything we do, basically like putting the least uh, amount of uh, risk and getting the maximum reward was very fascinating. That is something that attracted me, you know, when I was getting into poker and that is something I encourage people to do when they get in is firstly, just start really small. It's a game of numbers, you know, got to put in volume, uh, show a lot of profit. And it's these days, it's not really hard to uh, put in a lot of volume. So by that, I mean, there are a lot of stables that are ready to stake you. There are a lot of uh, coaching sites. There are a lot of uh, groups that they, you know, they help help one another. If you are someone who's showing results, you can even show results on micro stakes and then probably get staked for bigger stakes. So there's always a way if you have the will, if you have the the heart to really sit and work out on things and really work on yourself, there's nothing that can stop you. And especially someone like me, if I can do it, I just feel like anyone can do it. Anyone, possibly. <laughs> In uh, India, of course, you can now play online. So you don't have to have a big bankroll to, you know, head off to a casino or a WSOP. Yeah, you can play online. And um, we have uh, this destination called Goa. This is a beach down south in India and over there uh, we have WPT India and we have few domestic tournaments that happen and other than that there are a lot of uh, action on the Indian poker sites so that's my advice to people that when you're starting out in poker you know just very little money which is actually you, you would spend on like something just uh, to entertain yourself or something just very very little that disposable income if you want to put put that into poker and see how it goes this game is such that if you have the skill you will get the money great well thank you so much and one last question muskan do people recognize you on the streets in india um or are, like what's your level of <laughs> of fame from your poker career <laughs> Uh, okay, so they do recognize me uh, somewhere here or there. Uh, and it's amazing when that happens. Because to be honest, uh, they, they're like, it has to be someone who's seen Shark Cage. You know that? <laughs> it's like more than anything. They're like, oh, I saw you on Shark Cage. And I'm like, how in the world did you see Shark Cage? <laughs> like, you know, they like, we found it on YouTube and like, uh, we watch poker tournaments. That was a great bluff. And also, like, you know, now we guys are doing a global poker league in India and it comes on national TV. So not just me, like a lot of the Indian poker players are like now people recognize them. They know who they are and it's just going to get better. How, what do you think, Jen? I haven't been to India for so many years, but I know that like the chess players in India are, are so well known, particularly Vishyanand. And so it intrigues me to think like that the poker champions could be like the the next great sports people in India. And I hope that, uh, you know, you continue to do your work to promote the game as a mind sport. Obviously, poker 
is uh, great for some people and for some people it doesn't fit their life. And what we try to do with uh, promoting it is find ways for it to fit people's lives right. And it seems like yeah. that's what you're on to. And I really feel that this game, it just keeps you mentally really healthy. And it's something that I I want people to like, even like say, you know, at an old age home, uh, I uh, suggested uh, this old age home to have like a poker uh, night there or like a poker evening there. And I, I, I actually want to go and teach them uh, one of these days. So they are working on it. <laughs> They're saying we're trying to create a group for you. So give us some time. And the reason I want to do that is that I just know that it's something that keeps your brain really alert. And no matter what age you're at. And it's something people should anyway respect and like pursue as a mind sport. Even if they don't want to like make make money out of it, don't do that. But it should be something uh, that it's a it's a well-respected mind sport. And uh, talking about the revolution in India, it's it's yet to happen. And this is just people just knowing about it on their own right now. Uh, the government is yet to do something about it. Uh, our tax policies and everything else has to be looked into right now. Uh, everything has to be changed. It, it has to become under the... We are anyway paying so much tax to the government. It's high time that the government is going to look into this and probably uh, recognize it as a skill game. And when that happens, uh, you will see a lot of people recognizing poker players just like they do uh, when they see a cricketer or when they see like some really big sports person in India. They all know it. I like to know about them right now it's just they don't understand it much and that is only because you know things are not haven't come out yet but uh, when that happens you will see uh, everything going you know multiplying in India for sure where poker is concerned Wonderful. Well, I, I can't wait to follow you. And for those of you who listen to this podcast and want to follow Muskan, you can find her on Poker Stars, on the tour, including many EPT spots, and at Muskan Sethi, that's a S-E-T-H-I, on Twitter, and Muskan Sethi 5 on Instagram. So stay posted with Muskan. I can't wait to follow you. And thank you so much for talking to us about this incredible Jack Nine offsuit hand against Timex that really um, catapulted you into a life of professional poker. Thank you so much, Jen. It was amazing talking to you. You have uh, reminded me a lot. Thank you so much. <laughs> if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as a quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at U.S. Chess Women, where I host another podcast, Ladies Night. And follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent. You won't see me, see me stunting. No, never, never stagger. Believe it, I'm the real thing.